We continue our journey today through the book of 2 Samuel, and in this episode of David's life, a turning point in his life that Sarah has just read. I want us this morning to think carefully about the pathology of David. I'm not using that term in a medical sense. Uh, I am using this term pathology in a spiritual sense. What do I mean by the pathology of David? I mean something is abnormal. Deviation from God's revealed will for David's life according to Scripture. And I want us to think about David's pathology so that we can think about our own pathology. That is, when we deviate from God's revealed will for our lives. I'd like to suggest that one of the reasons that David has gone astray One of the reasons that David has so outrageously gone against the Lord's will and committed adultery and gone to these lengths to cover it up is that his his, you ready for this word? (laughs) This is a a word you've never heard before. Have you heard of the word hidden? I'm having trouble with the words. Can you tell that in my brain? There is an imaginary device called a hidden meter. You got that? Hidden meter. And I'm stumbling over the pronunciation of that. So just say, help him, Lord. Say, help him, Lord. Where did I come up with this idea of this imaginary device of this hidden meter? Well, I didn't come up with it. Uh, It came from uh, this dude, (laughs) Francis Yacidro Edgeworth. And I think this imaginary device will actually be helpful to you and to me to think about today and in the future. So what is this device? In his book from 1881, here's where this word hidden meter comes from. And David's hidden meter needs recalibrated. All right, here we go. Let there be granted to the science of pleasure what is granted to the science of energy to imagine an ideally perfect instrument, a psychophysical machine continually registering the height of pleasure experienced by an individual exactly according to the verdict Exactly according to the verdict of consciousness, from moment to moment, the hidden meter varies. Easy for me to say. The hidden meter varies. The delicate index, now flickering with the flutter of the passions, now steadied by intellectual activity, low sunk whole hours in the neighborhood of zero or momentarily springing up towards infinity. I want to suggest that David's hidden meter needs recalibrating. 
And I think this imaginary device that this dude invented in this book in his brain way back then is something that is helpful for us to think about today. I think you're aware of this, but let me just remind you that God's will is for you to be joy-filled, for you to have pleasure in your life. Look on the screen, Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. God wants to fulfill the desires of your heart. He wants you to have pleasure. He wants your hedinometer to be off the chart and high. But our desires need to be in the Lord. God wants you to be a joy-filled person. In fact, he commands it. Look at Philippians 4.4. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. God has commanded us to be filled with joy and to rejoice. And in case you're confused, he says, hey, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. David's head in a meter is off. It needs calibration. And you and I have the same problem. We don't have the exact situation that David has, but we have our own spiritual pathology where we seek joy and pleasure in the wrong things. Our desires are in the wrong things, and we need recalibration. So before we get into today's text, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, I want to go back to chapter 3 briefly, and I'm asking the question, what is driving your heat in a meter? Is it scripture or is it culture? And I want to begin, before we think about our own lives, to think about David and how he got to the place of 2 Samuel 11, where he's on the deck of his rooftop, if you will, and ends up committing adultery and on and on the cover-up. How did we get to this place? How did David get here? What has been driving his Hedonometer has not been scripture, it has been culture. There is a spiritual pathology or problem in David's life. And we can see this problem uh, going back to to 1 Samuel. Before we go back to 1 Samuel, look on the screen at Deuteronomy 17, 17. This is what the law says, what the Torah says about a leader or a king of Israel. It says, he must not take many wives. Or his heart will be led astray. Our hearts are designed by God to have these great desires that are fulfilled when we are desiring the Lord, when he is at the center of our desires and our thoughts. And our hearts go astray and our hedonometers need recalibrated when we are desiring the wrong things. And so the culture of the ancient Near East for kings was to have many wives. And so the law says, don't conform to the culture, conform to this. Don't do this. Now on the screen, if we look back at 2 Samuel chapter 3, it says, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Abnon, the son of Ahinoam. So there's wife number one. And then we have a second son, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, wife number two. Then we have his third son, Absalom, 
the son of Mekah. And then we have Adonijah, his wife, from his wife Haggith. We have Shephathiah, the son of Abitai, his fifth wife. And then we have Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. David, we are told, has six wives. And as he is standing out on his rooftop deck, and he sees, as Sarah read, this very beautiful woman bathing, my understanding from reading First and Second Samuel is that he is simply seeking another wife. As he seeks, sends people to find out this woman's identity, he learns her identity and that she is married to Uriah and he makes this crazy decision to send for her anyway. What he is doing, what is driving his hidden meter is the culture of the day and not scripture. His desires are not right. His desires are wrong. And his desires are for her. God wants our desires to be fulfilled and he has actually instructed David and others how to have these desires for intimacy to be fulfilled. Look on the screen with me at Proverbs chapter 5. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow into the street? Your streams of water in the public squares? This is intimate imagery addressed to men in Proverbs 5. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife, singular, of your youth. Don't look for another and another and another and another. This has been David's pattern, contrary to Scripture and in conformity with his culture. Proverbs 5 goes on, Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. What David thinks is going to give him great pleasure. It does actually for a moment. But it is followed by an ensnarement, by this spiritual bondage, by cords of his sin that hold him fast, that are multi-generational, that are terrible. And so his hidden meter needs recalibrated. He is not thinking biblically. He is not thinking about delighting the Lord. He is not conforming to Scripture he is conforming to his culture. He is saying to himself, I've got this, and he gets it. It is a tragic turn in his life. What is driving your hidden meter? Is it scripture or is it culture? As we think about David's pathology, his spiritual deviation from God's word, I want us to think about two more categories now. And we see them in the beginning of verse 4. If your Bibles are open to 2 Samuel 11, look at verse 4. 
We'll get to our text for today, which begins in verse 6 in just a moment. But in the beginning of verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. As I just referenced, he had the opportunity not to send them when he learned that she was married to one of his most faithful servants, one of his most faithful soldiers, one of his mighty men. But his hitometer is, is, is off course. And so he sends these messengers uh, to get her. And what he is not experiencing is those around him being lovingly intrusive to his life. They are simply doing what he says. I think there was an awareness of what was going on within his servants in the palace that night. He sends someone to figure out who this woman is. He learns who she is. And then he sends people to go and get her. What he really needed was someone to break into his life and say, hey, what are you about to do? What is driving your hidden meter? <laughs> he needed someone who truly cared and, and would disobey the orders to go and get this person or at least find someone who would speak to him. Maybe they didn't have the authority to disobey these orders, but they could have gone and found someone who was close to David, who was an authority figure, and said, hey, would you go and have a conversation with him? This is about to go down. Do you have people like that in your life when you are going in the wrong direction? When you are blind to your blindness, David is blind to his blindness. He needs someone to step in. We're eventually going to get to the point where God supernaturally sends someone to lovingly intrude into David's life. But nobody is doing that right now. So we have to have people around us that love us and care about us and can intrude into our lives and, and help us get on course and recalibrate the hidden meter in our lives. Look back at the text. We're at verse 4, looking back at verse 4. So he sent these messengers to get her. Then she came to him, and he slept with her. One commentator says this, like any other man, he feels attracted by the beauty of that woman. This is what happened as he's walking on the rooftop deck of his life. And what is going on inside of him is something that goes in, on inside all of us. I'm not referring to lust here, but I'm referring to the tunnel vision that he has. You can abbreviate this tunnel vision that I'm describing with uh, these letters. You all know what this means, right? What you see is all there is. What you see is all there is. This is a phrase that's used by uh, an author named Daniel Kahneman, and it is a helpful phrase or a helpful acronym, a helpful whatever code word. What you see is all there is. That is the spiritual pathology that is going on inside of David as he walks out on the deck, as he sends someone to figure out who this is, and then once he learns who she is, he sends other people to go and get her. What you see is all there is. He's got tunnel vision. You've had it too. 
You ever been in an argument with someone? Say yes. You ever been in an argument with someone? And that pride is just coming up. And, and, and what you see is all there is, you have to win this argument. And you might get louder, or you might get more reasoned, or you might get more critical, or you might get more pointed. What you see in the midst of that heated argument, that that's all you can see. And you're going to win that argument. That is the dangerous spiritual pathology that is going on in David's life as he walks out on the deck and sends his servants eventually to get another man's wife. A man who is incredibly faithful and loyal to David. We can't live that way. We need to have an understanding that we are blind to our blindness. We need to have an understanding what you see is all there is. is a dangerous place that many of us get to in all sorts of different contexts. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. This is the biggest framework for life. No matter whether you are young or old, male or female, rich or poor, you are on this earth to live a life to glorify God. And the good news that is in the Bible is that he wants you to do that with joy, with happiness, with pleasure. He wants your hidden meter to be, to be off the chart. He wants you to eat and drink in such a way that you glorify God. He wants you to walk around on the deck at night in a way that glorifies God. He wants you to be in front of the screen in, the way, in a way that you glorify God. We are God-glorifying creatures. That is what he has intended for us to be and do. But what happens in our lives is what you see is all there is. And we forget that we are living for the glory of God. We forget that God even exists. We forget that he knows our thoughts. We forget that he knows what is best for our own joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And we go our own way and I'm just, I'm going to win this argument. This is all that exists and I'm going to win it. Whether it's pride or whether it's lust, we need our hidden meters recalibrated. What is driving your hidden meter? Is it scripture or is it culture? Is it I've got this? Do you have people around you who can intrude into your life when you have a spiritual pathology going on and you're deviating from the word of God and you are going to be suffering? And your joy quotient, your happiness, your, your, your fulfillment of desires are going to be going down. Is it what you see is all there is, or is it the glory of God? This is how we are intended to live for the glory of God. In our text today, David is still lost. He's lost in this moment of what you see is all there is. And he is thinking of himself. He is not thinking of the Lord. He is not thinking of others. And he has sinned in a way that will have massive multi-generational consequences. And those consequences continue uh, in today's text, which we're going to look now at verses 6 through 13. Look at your Bibles uh, with me. 2 Samuel 11 and verse 6. He's just gotten word that she's pregnant. Here's David's response in verse 6. 
So he sent this word to Joab. Joab's out on the battlefield where David should be. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Let's pause here for a moment. So the reader here, the, the, the omniscient narrator of 2 Samuel, wants us to see how outrageous this is. This is one of his mighty men. This is one of his warriors. This is not who you send to get communication from, from the battlefield. You don't take a guy like this off of the battlefield. And why has he taken him off the battlefield? Hey, how's Joab doing? Hey, how's the war going? He uses the word shalom here in the Hebrew text. Is there peace? The skillful writer, inspired by the Spirit of God, wants the reader to see the outrageousness of this communication. So Uriah the Hittite is with David. Verse 8. So David says to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That is a very strong statement. Wash your feet. What does it mean? It means two things. In that culture, feet got dirty. People were often barefoot or wearing sandals. Didn't have the kind of showering and hygiene that we have. And people's feet smelled bad. So on one level, he's saying, wash your feet. Go to your house. Take a shower. But that's not really what he's saying. This is another way to say something that you don't say in this sort of setting or really in any setting. There are certain subjects that are very difficult to speak about, even when you're with one of your trusted soldiers. So what he's saying, by saying wash your feet, is to go and be with your wife. This is what he's saying. Look at Uriah's response. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. I'm curious what that is. It's cigars. I don't know what he sent him. He sent him some sort of gift, a meal, a bottle of wine. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. This is a faithful Hittite showing the Israelite David how to love God, how to live. God is not so concerned with your ethnicity or your race. We have almost no Jewish people here today. But he does not care that much whether you are Jew or Gentile or slave or free or rich or poor or barbarian or Scythian. What God cares about is that you love him with all that you have. And Uriah, the Hittite, is faithful to the God of Israel. And the Israelite king is not. He doesn't go to his house. He doesn't go to his house. Back in 1 Samuel 21, you might remember, David is not in the palace, not hanging out, but he's on the battlefield with his soldiers, where he should be in chapter 11. And they come across the priest, 
and they need some bread. And he asks for bread, and the priest responds, have you been, to paraphrase, have you been godly? Have you stayed away from your wives? This was the culture of battle in the ancient Near East. Look at David's response in 1 Samuel 21. Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. We don't have little trips home when we're out in the battlefield at war. This is what's normal. This is what David is saying in 1 Samuel 21. And this is what Uriah the Hittite is saying to David in 2 Samuel 11 as he's hanging out in his palace when his men are on the battlefield at war. What is driving David's hidden demeanor? It's not the glory of God. It's not God at the center of his heart. It's himself. David is professing to do one thing, but his real intention or purpose is another. This is a strategic cover-up to make himself look better than he is. And Uriah, who I think is ignorant of what has happened, which makes this story that much more dramatic, won't go to his house to do what he could do. wouldn't be a sin, but this isn't what men do when they're at war in the ancient Near East. But David has done more than that. He's betrayed the Lord. He's betrayed Uriah. He's betrayed Bathsheba. And so his hedonometer needs recalibrating. And the way to recalibrate it when our spiritual pathology is discovered is to confess. David should be confessing to Uriah and to Bathsheba and most importantly to the Lord, but instead he is covering up. So how do we read this text? What God does not want us to do is to read this text like a Pharisee and go, how could David do something like that? That is exactly how not to read this text. The way to read this text is in what way might I be similar to where I'm blind, I've got a certain spiritual pathology in my life, and I want to make myself look better than I actually am. I don't have someone lovingly, intrusively butting into my life and saying, hey, hey, bro, you don't want to do that. That is the way to read this text. The way to recalibrate the hedonometer, the joy, the happiness in David's life is through confession. And instead of pretense to speak honestly and genuinely with this man who's serving him faithfully on the battlefield and serving God faithfully moment by moment. Cover up or confession. David is choosing cover up. He is pretending to be one thing, to do one thing, but he's actually doing another. He's pretending to show this great blessing to Uriah Well, let's finish up our text for today. Verse 10. 
When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? The battlefield's far away. Why didn't you go home? What you see is all there is. All David can see right now is the cover-up. The cover-up. Verse 11. Uriah says to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. They're, they're vulnerable on the battlefield. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, Feel the loyalty to David, the, the, the king of Israel that God anointed, who's so off course right now, who needs massive recalibration. Surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. I will not do such a thing. The, the reader here is just, just should be on the edge of our seat saying, Please, please confess, repent, turn the course, move away from pretense, move away from the cover up. Move toward joy and happiness, and that begins with confession and honesty and integrity. But David goes the other direction. Verse 12, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah is a good and godly drunk. <laughs> Some people, they get drunk and they get nasty. They get evil. They get extra mean and vicious and dangerous. But Uriah seems to be on the other side of that spectrum. He's drunk. David got him drunk. David, cover-up plan number one didn't work. So he goes to cover-up plan number two. And David is going further and further. His pathology is increasing. His deviation from the word of God. What you can see is all there is. I did this. I can't face the reality of this. I can't face Uriah. I can't tell the truth. I can't repent. I can't confess. I'm not thinking of God. I got to get this covered up. He is ignoring God's word. I don't know if you're familiar with this passage. It's an important one in Habakkuk 2. It's about the abuse of alcohol. It says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. This is if you do something like what David has done. You get someone drunk to take advantage of them and get them to do something that they wouldn't normally do. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, those who use drugs or alcohol, to get someone to do something they wouldn't ordinarily do. And disgrace will cover your glory. David's pathology is increasing. His spiritual deviation from how to live. What is driving David's hedonometer? 
It's pretense. It's not authenticity. It's not truth. It's not repentance and confession. And that is the way to get recalibrated. The way to find joy is to repent and to confess and to come clean. As painful as that is for a time, it is going to lead to joy in the morning and God's mercies are new every day. The way this text should read us is we should be, you and I should be super eager to confess and repent and to want people to lovingly intrude into our lives when we are blind. And what you can see is all there is when you're in that mode that you get out of that and you can see the glory of God and a better way to live and to restore the joy of your salvation. This is the way to live. We'll close today looking at this the, the, the moment where Peter had a shift. Peter lied multiple times. He denied the Lord. And then he came clean right away. No, he didn't come clean right away. He, 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 he was living in this fantasy, this pretense, trying to make himself look better than he actually was. Oh, no, I, I, I didn't say that. You and I are like Peter We naturally want to put ourselves in a better light than we are, denying God, and our hidden meter is crashing. It needs recalibration. We need something or someone to break in. And what broke into Peter's life? What was the noise that went off? Yes. So he hears these crowings, and then he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. That is, Weeping leads to a recalibration and leads to joy. The gospel needs to drive our hidden meters. Did you have fun how I struggled with that word? It's okay if you did. God wants us to be happy, joyful, fulfilled people. He's given us parameters and laws not to keep us from joy and happiness and pleasure, but to maximize it. To maximize it. That is the God that we serve. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, Lord, help us to have people around us when we can't see what we're doing. People who love you, who will break in and help us to weep bitterly Receive the infinite mercy of God that is just waiting. Jesus is just waiting to forgive us and to set us on a new course. Lord, help us to be people who are quick to repent, quick to confess, and that we would move back to a place of joy, a place where our hidden meters are just off the chart because your grace is helping us to live the way you've designed us to live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.